You're about to hear my conversation with our co-team lead of fixed income, Constantine Bomer. We talk all about inflation, including where inflation is likely to end up, what the Fed's reactions are, and if food and oil will create a challenge for developing markets. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Constantine Bummer. Constantine is the Senior Vice President and Co-Team Lead of the McKinsey Fixed Income Team. Constantine, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. I've invited you back to talk about the most topical uh, conversation probably that we're hearing uh, in financial markets, which is inflation. Uh, We saw in the U.S. uh, the very high print of 7% uh, most recently. Uh, Maybe I'll start by just getting your take on inflation. I know previously there was this talk of transitory, non-transitory. Where do you uh, line up in that camp and what are some of the implications? Yeah, sure. Great. So I'll start off with, I mean, you just said it, right? Inflation is at absolutely extreme levels. We have seen, or we have not seen those levels in extremely long time. And I think the important part for us, especially when we have to make uh, investment decisions based on, on that key factor, is that we have to look at where is that inflation coming from. And there are two Broadly, two big camps. One is the the cost push area. One is the demand pull. So, cost push is typically things that are just uh, let's say an oil price spike or so based on supply constraints. That would be a cost push right. uh, situation, and typically those will take care of itself. And maybe another one that we could look at would be used car prices or something where the the costs or of in a good are rising because there's a supply constraint on that on that part and that could see prices spike higher temporarily but typically cost push are more to be seen as a tax on the consumer than anything that uh, will be long lasting right and that uh, tax on the consumer i think is a, is an important point here because right, if you fill up your your gas tank and instead of it costing sixty bucks, it costs you one hundred and twenty bucks. You have sixty dollars less, and that is a hit on your disposable income. And that hit on your disposable income is would be then similar seen as a tax increase. And you just can't spend those sixty dollar on other items that you usually would uh, would purchase. And that is a disinflationary force on those other items. Then we also have this, so and we have a lot of that stuff, right? We had plenty of uh, cost push in inflation, which brought up the the inflation figures, and that is, uh, I think, the the fair point to make here is that this should be all fairly transitory in right. nature. But then we also had a demand pull, and that is something which was like aided by some policy actions so we had in the in the aftermath of the march 2020 time period we had two major factors one was a change in consumption pattern 
where all of a sudden everyone wanted to buy weights or a Peloton or um, maybe some home improvement stuff, buying new yeah. desk chairs or furniture, what's, uh, what was on everyone's list. I'm sure um, we had uh, quite a few on our list here at home too. Of course. So there's changing consumption pattern, but then there's also the, the free checks that were handed out in many places around the globe, most importantly in the US, but also here in Canada. And that is something which spiked the demand for a lot of the goods and that has led to an, an increasing pressure on prices and that is something where we also forward looking um why i i mentioned the cost push argument is is maybe or will start to fade reasonably soon i think there's still some some pressures that we need to deal with in the next few quarters but that should be fading soon and then on the demand side that's po possibly also something that should be fading soon because the the checks that were handed out um, have broadly run its course and the changing consumption pattern. I mean, we're still in the midst of a, of another wave of COVID so that they haven't dissipated all that much. But if we fast forward half a year to a year, right. my expectation would be that that should also fade. Right, so there is some key factors on the inflation side where I'm looking at it and we're like, okay, well, we have really high inflation, but that should come down. But then maybe if I if I can, there are some other aspects which are not all that transitory and where we have to maybe live with some of those impacts for a little bit longer. And the one that jumps to my mind as the, the key and the biggest one is um, what we see on, on the wages side. Hmm. Because that's really what makes the, the inflation more durable is if we get a greater purchasing power. And we temporarily got that greater purchasing power by those checks that were handed out um, through the fiscal transfers. But the wages side that we see now, where we see the trends of increasing wages in many of the major economies, that is something that could have a little bit of a longer lasting power to sustain inflation at higher levels than they have previously been. And that that probably leaves me with a, a, a my argument, which is, look, yeah, that's inflation will likely come down but it will probably stay at a higher level than what we have seen in the past. And that is based on wages just having a positive impact on the disposable income of the, of the population. And the population therefore could be able to handle those, uh, those impacts of $120 to fill up your gas tank as opposed right. to 60 without making the sacrificial choice of spending less in in other areas, right? Um, so we so I, I love the distinction between wages being the cause of uh, call it stickier inflation uh, and the supply chains and all the stuff that we're reading the headlines being more transitory in nature uh, with the stimulus coming up off on the uh, wage growth side. Um, we have seen wages uh, tick up. Uh, fairly substantially, and uh, I'm thinking of the U.S. specifically, they're still um, quite a bit under the inflation rate, however, so you haven't seen real wage growth. Do you expect yep. that wage growth to be sort of a self 
correcting mechanism where the growth rate will correspond with inflation, or do you think it'll actually run hotter uh, for a considerable amount of time? Yeah, great question. I think it is wages are like a, a lagging indicator of CPI. So the higher CPI goes, the more uh, pressure will be on wages to go up. I think there a lot of aspects have to fit together. You need to have a fairly tight labor market for that to 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 be seen in in markets. So you cannot make that 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 broad assumption in all cases. But if you have a a tight labor market, which I think we have in Canada and in, in the US, then, and you have inflation at levels that we're seeing now that increases the pressure all around for wages to go up. And I would say, yes, they are negative uh, in, ter- in real terms, but I think that is because we're seeing this overshoot of inflation right now. And I'm, um, in the camp that we'll see inflation peter out probably on the on the year over year basis by the end of this year and we'll see much more normal inflation figures at that time and that should probably then also lead us to see positive real wages because that should probably stay at a at a higher level for a little bit longer while headline inflation in in the way that we often look at it via CPI should should come down and, and be at a high level, but not as high of a level that we see right now. Uh, great. Well, let's turn now to the response to inflation uh, by the Federal Reserve specifically. Markets pricing in sort of three rate hikes uh, next year. Um, we saw quite a big move uh, in, in uh, short term rates at the beginning of this year. Uh, and also talk of uh, not just um, uh, not just quantitative uh, easing ending, but quantitative tightening tightening happening on a on a quick quicker scale. Is the response by the Fed? Do you think it's uh, appropriate in this case uh, to to sort of combat some of the inflation, uh, or do you think it's an overreaction? Yep. Um, so I mean, it is actually absolutely incredible of how much is being priced in right now. And we, we had this discussion today at, a, at our team meeting where if, but we've done those things many times in the past where we say, imagine how we would have uh, expected the future look like if you would tell me this. And if I'm telling, if I were to go back half a year in time and were to tell my colleagues, look, what do you think equity markets would would trade like? How do you think currencies are? If um, the Fed turned around and is now at a stage where for 2022, we're pricing in more than four rate hikes. No. So as of today, it's more than four rate hikes. <laughs> wow. We have more than one priced in for the March meeting. So more than one means there's a chance that it will be 50 basis points, wow. right? So we're, we went from a clear distinction between uh, the end of rate hikes doesn't mean the, <laughs> or the, sorry, the end of the quantitative, or the, the tapering doesn't mean that we will go with rate hikes right after. That has changed. And we went from the tapering to quantitative tightening, which is now the, the role of, of the balance sheet, which is expected to be coming in the summer. So there's a dramatic change 
and we're actually, I think markets have taken it pretty well. Right? We have, obviously, we're higher in, in rates. Uh, some risky assets are a little bit softer, but it is still reasonably okay, right? We're equity markets, maybe in some of the techie areas in the uh, no, no profit space, um, some of the, the ARC favorites, there's some trouble there, but it is uh, by and large, I, I think the market has taken that reasonably well. But that obviously doesn't mean that it will stay um, all that great going forward. But I think the, the point that you brought up in your, in your question is the urgency of, of the Fed. And I think that is, that is key. And I think that the urgency might be a little bit misplaced. I, I think the moves are all the right ones. I think we, were, we need to raise rates. We're in too low of, a, of an interest rate environment globally. I think the balance sheets of central banks have expanded too far and too fast, and that it also makes sense that that needs to be, be reined in. Uh, it's probably also good that we have a little bit of a roll-off of that balance sheet to bring it down to, to uh, historically more normal levels. So I'm in agreement that all of those things need to happen. The question here is really about the, the aggressiveness of the move and the urgency that is uh, applied to it. And I think that is the, the biggest risk that, that I see also for the next few weeks to months is that that might be a little bit too far and too fast and too much. And we have to strike a balance that we keep that expansion going for for longer and we have to keep in mind that we don't have perfect foresight obviously of all the things that are coming our way and we're treating a lot of the the views going forward as that will happen and the, the central banks or central bank governors and policymakers are making a very strong and decisive case that this is what we will do and we will hike rates and we will end QE and we will start QT and so on. And I think that's maybe a little bit on the on the urgency side, pressing it uh, too hard. But, but I also think that it makes sense because it is from from their point of view, because from, from their point of view is this is the number one topic on politicians' minds. Sure. And it is the number one topic because... It is the number one topic for the population, and that makes it just politically beneficial to take that on and act on it. And the pressure is from the population on the politicians, from the politicians on central bankers, and something needs to get done. And we need to see some results. But we, right? It, as I mentioned in the in the opening um, question that you posed, a lot of it will be seen as temporary and the inflation figures will come down most likely i I've, unfortunately don't have the, that crystal ball but most likely a lot of those figures will come down and i'm just a little bit fearful that this demand spike that we've gotten from the fiscal transfers over the past year plus the supply constraints resulting from uh, changing demand patterns and like shortages in some areas that this will um, just 
push the Fed a little bit too far in terms of the urgency bias that they have. Okay. So um, to summarize the, the views that we've talked about so far, it sounds like you're in the camp that inflation comes down, but maybe is a little bit stickier based on wage uh, inflation growth. Uh, we expect higher inflation than we have had over the past decade. Uh, and then the Fed currently is posturing that they have to move a little bit too fast, uh, which poses some risks. If I have that right, just to move to sort of the next um, question that I have for you, which is about kind of longer term factors for inflation. So what, what, are, what are some of the implications if inflation does remain as you expect it to, to remain a little bit higher than it has previously? Um, and how do they play into different factors? Um, so I would say like the, the biggest risks for me are that markets will just not take it all that well, right? If, if inflation just keeps on coming too high and they will just see too much of a pressure on central banks to act that they will act until something breaks. And I think that is the, the biggest risk for me, that the pressure for every month that passes for that, that headline CPI doesn't come down, um, that the pressure just doesn't abate and that will incentivize uh, central bankers, politicians to just keep on pushing that same narrative and that is being pushed until something breaks. So I think that is... The biggest risk for me, the ideal outcome is that we'll have a gradual declining um, inflation rate, which should see uh, central bank, central bankers' urgency decline, still doing uh, raising rates from ultra low levels that uh, we shouldn't keep uh, th those emergency rates at, the, at those levels for all that much longer, uh, obviously ending the, the QE. But then bringing, maybe moderating that, that tone a little bit and just moving to a, a more sustainable and long-term higher rise in, in interest rates without choking off the, the recovery that uh, is in some ways just beginning from the economic sense. In financial markets, that recovery is very far advanced. So I think longer term, yeah, sure, the risk is is always the biggest risk on the inflation side is this wage price spiral that we will enter a an episode where wages are spiking higher, which will lead to greater uh, purchasing power, which will lead to greater demand for goods and services. And you get into a spiral which brings prices higher and higher. And there is only one way to, to stop it, which is choking it off. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think there might be an incentive to have inflation run a little bit higher than it has in the past decades or decade. But I don't think we are um, with the debt levels that we have, with the interest rate sensitive nature that our economies are operating. I don't think there is a, a real case for sustained higher inf or high inflation above and beyond a three, three and a half percent. I don't think that's, that, that is a, a real possibility here. 
Constantine, in the past, I know that we've talked about uh, food inflation and some of the impacts of food inflation and how you incorporate that into your investment decision making. Uh, maybe you can walk us through uh, how you think about those things and, and what impact it may have. Sure. So I'll start with maybe the, the broad way of how we look at sovereign risk and uh, food prices are, are one of them. So the broad based view is that we look, need to look at some of the traditional metrics. Those could be the government debt to GDP. Sure. We look at current account deficits. We look at budget balance, etc. We look at the indebtedness of the overall population, corporates, government, households, etc. So those are maybe some of the more traditional ones. But then we also have some non-traditional or a little bit um, more esoteric uh, factors that we we think are still extremely important in order to assess the overall risk of a of a country, and some of those indicators would be that we look at the default history of each country and have an indicator for that. We look at natural disasters. How likely is it that one country experiences a natural disaster? Geopolitical risk, uh, demographics, demographic trends of those countries. But the one that you're referring to here is the food prices, and we have an indicator which looks at each country, how vulnerable is it to changes in food prices. And it is it is an indicator that is oftentimes irrelevant, but sometimes it becomes extremely relevant. Mm. And the the way that this indicator works, and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how and when it is best used but the way that the indicator works is that we look at for each country so we have a, a model that covers something like 65 okay. yeah 65 countries and we look at the household spending for each of those countries what is the household spending on food as a percentage of total consumption okay so it's basically what percentage in the CPI basket as a weight is related to food and you have to make some adjustments because of how do you factor in restaurants because that has services and et cetera. But it's basically how big of a weight is food in the overall consumption basket. That is one. And the bigger, the more vulnerable you are, obviously. And there is a bias towards rich countries generally have a smaller percentage uh, of food and the total consumption and poorer countries generally have a larger weight. And then the next step is to look at, is the country as a whole a food importer or a food exporter? Okay. And that is something maybe as a crystal clear example for that would be New Zealand or Uruguay, Argentina. Those are major food exporters. And then you have other countries, city states, for example, is, a, is a perfect. So Hong Kong would be a major food importer, but also a lot of the countries in North Africa, your Morocco, Egypt, uh, Tunisia, Algeria, they are all major food importers right okay and that's that, that's something that makes them more vulnerable because they have to basically pay market price on global markets to bring in food into their country and then the third variable is gdp per capita and that is 
pretty much your your buffer. Like how much of a buffer do you have if food prices were to rise? If you have a high GDP per capita, you can probably sustain or or, or like be able to to figure that out in your higher sure. higher income. If you have just a small amount, it is right. There's probably not all that much that you can shift around and that makes you more vulnerable as a whole. So if you put all of those things together and they're weighted slightly different and put together, you can generally find that there is a that there are some that there that there are obviously countries which are quite vulnerable and those would be um, your Morocco, Lebanon, Egypt, Sri Lanka, Romania, and then you have others which are probably benefiting from a situation of rising food prices, which are Denmark, Netherlands, Argentina, New Zealand, Uruguay. Okay. And so what what that generally means is it, it means nothing if food prices are staying where they are. Sure. But if food prices are going up or down, right, then you can see some impact on on those economies. And the way that it works is that in a food price surge, the countries, and we have looked at this, and Nomura um, has also done some, some great research on that. In When food prices are rising, you will see that the economic fundamentals of the weaker countries are deteriorating a lot faster. So you will have lower growth, higher inflation, bigger uh, budget deficits, uh, generally uh, more interest rate hikes coming from the central bank in those weaker countries versus the stronger ones which are benefiting from this and will not see uh, those negative impacts and will actually see see positive impacts here. And that should see, uh, uh, and right now we are in one of those surges of food prices. Right. So if I look at... Um, the overall food price index it is we've seen a significant rise uh, in in food price inflation so if, if you look at a year over year figure we're rising by 20% and over 20% year over year food price increases it was as high as 40% at the beginning of this year and when we look at index levels so not the year over year comparison but the the index level you can see that the episode, this episode that we're going through right now has almost the same velocity, the same impulse that we've seen in the 2008 or 2007 episode running into 2008. And then we had another uh, episode where we've seen a major food price inflation, which was in the 2010 episode. And the both uh, episodes uh, 2007 right that uh, ended in the in the great financial crisis and the 2010 episode didn't result in a crisis of that magnitude but it resulted in the arab spring for example uh, and that was one major uh, development uh, during that time where food prices had a significant impact on major disruption in in countries around the globe, and it um, started. Uh, it's it's always hard to say where, where exactly it started, but the the 
the situation in Tunisia with one man lighting himself up on the on the on the market as a protest on uh, food price uh, food price inflation was one of the key f- features of that Arab Spring, which then resulted in uh, many revolts and revolutions in a, lo- a lot of countries in the region, and we see a lot of those similar patterns happening again. And uh, we might be a little bit early in that in that process. So we've uh, we have not seen all too much turmoil. But if I look at Kazakhstan, right, that's yeah. that's not really a, a food price story, but it is an energy price story where a trigger of the of the turmoil that we've seen there was a protests which started against uh, increases in gasoline prices. And that is actually another model that we have uh, on our side, which is looking at energy price vulnerability. Kazakhstan usually wouldn't score extremely high on that because it has a lot of um, oil reserves in itself. But that is, right, there, there are pressure points and Pressure points are it's like a, it's like a balloon that you blow up, and the further it is blown up, you never know exactly when it's going to explode. But it just takes a little bit less of a prick from a needle to make it pop, and we are in that blowing up of the the balloon phase. And I would not be surprised to see uh, more fallouts from the rise in food price inflation. That's why we're we're monitoring those countries which are mostly most exposed to it very very closely and are paying attention to what is happening on the ground in in those countries great and have you have has that impacted uh, any portfolio decisions at this point or it's something that you're currently monitoring uh, and you still think it's uh, a little bit in the future yeah no it, it is impacting our decision making so it is we don't have a, any exposure to the most exposed but like as everything, it is a a package deal, right? If like things need to line up to become a a great trade or to to become a an obvious uh, candidate for for changing allocation, right? We need to factor that is one key risk factor. We need to look at what is what are some other aspects of of that country so we need to look at what is the overall debt level what is the flow of funds argument what is the valuation that is currently assigned to those securities so the the greatest trades will always be when something is extremely rich and everyone is looking at only upside and then you, you find some underpriced risk and you just take the other side i don't think that's exactly the case here but we definitely do not want to be long any of those uh, countries that are heavily exposed to to food price vulnerability well constantine thank you for uh, walking through that your views on inflation uh, very interesting uh, before i uh, finish uh, i'll give the the last word to you have, have is there anything that you'd like to talk about uh, within inflation that we haven't already discussed uh, yeah maybe just quickly it's not a it's not a huge topic, but maybe on uh, energy is always a big one. I'm not the the biggest expert on on energy. We have others on the team who have much more to say on that side. But I that that would be another factor that I would be looking at fairly closely when it comes to to inflation, and that is only because 
of the energy side of the equation, or where which is heavily influenced by ESG considerations. Mm. So typically, what we see the cure for low prices is is low prices. The cure for high prices right. is high prices. Sure. But what we see right now is we're having higher prices, but we're not seeing the typical response. Mm. And the typical response to higher prices should be lots of investment going into that space, lots of new projects starting to get developed, new resources being added to the system, but we're seeing extremely little of that. Right. And that is something that is worrying in from an inflationary standpoint, but it is also it makes a lot of sense in in the world that we're in with um, a lot of focus being being put on on ESG on the environment looking at where should dollars go also how should companies and banks uh, allocate their resources do they want to finance projects in one area or another and that is what we're seeing we see a lot less supply of capital going into oil and gas exploration into there's also a lot less demand of those those companies those um, uh, issuers on on the enp side that they are actually asking for capital to bring new um, products into the market so there's just i think an overall lack of investment going into that space and at the same time Right. We still need fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. Demand is still growing if we strip out some um, temporary uh, Omicron or general COVID scares to, to global oil demand. But within, with, within an economy, uh, a global economy that is growing with a population that is still increasing, uh, oil demand is still expected to to grow and we need to see supply grow alongside and i'm fearful that there is too much underinvestment which could see higher oil prices coming into the future and esg considerations play play a fairly large role in that space that is so- something that we we also model on on our side um quite extensively so i think that is an upside risk uh, that we need to keep in mind that is um, maybe not at its final stage. So we're at oil prices in the 85 range for um, WTI, Brent a little bit higher, but I would not be surprised to see triple digits coming our way. No, really? So I think that is a, a key, key risk going forward, and that plays in also with food prices. So energy is a big component for everything, right? That uh, plays into... Uh, food price inflation uh, through different areas, fertilizers could be one, transportation of those could be another one, but that, that is a, a risk for sure. Very interesting. Um, yeah, maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave it with, a, with my conclusion. You can have your own conclusion for sure. But my conclusion is uh, that there's a risk that the Fed will, will make a mistake by placing too high of an urgency on lagging data. And I think that's a lot of the things that are 
being proposed that are done are absolutely necessary. The only question is the urgency behind it and the speed of which those are implemented. And whenever pressure is high, I think the risk for mistakes increases at the same time. And um, with data, right, it is hard to make decisions based on historical data. We need to be forward-looking. And I think that a lot of the aspects of why inflation is at those high levels will fade away. A lot of the stuff will remain. So that uh, underlines the argument that the steps are the right ones. It is only a matter of how urgent and how forceful do you need to do you need to go. And here my fear is that it's just if the pressure is too high and the urgency is is there on in the eyes of central bankers, they might put it and push it to the to the brink where something cracks. Second point for me is that inflationary risks remain going forward and that there is a more maybe structural shift higher in inflation after the transitory effects have been dealt with in the economy and that could mean that there's also some episodes where we are undershooting 2% in the next year or two I, I would not rule that out but I think that there is some underlying pressure on the wager side, which should persist for a little bit longer if we don't get uh, short-circuited by by too much policy action. But I think that is an extremely tight labor market, rising wages, that could be something that will last for a little bit longer. Um, and that is something that should structurally lift inflation to a, to a little bit higher levels. And at the same time, I also think that we have central bankers who are maybe not as fixated on the 2% uh, inflation target as they've been in the past and would be much more accepting of inflation, which is slightly above 2% and as such could see us uh, settle at a higher level. So a little bit 2% plus inflation going forward as opposed to 2% minus something as we've had in the in the past decade. And then the, the last one, I think, is for me that food prices, we have to monitor some of the more vulnerable countries. Right. That's that's the that's the point on the food vulnerability that this is something that is generally fairly easily manageable by developed nations. And Canada would be no exception, the US will be able to cope with that. Yes, it will be some hardship for for uh, some parts of of the population, but by and large, the country will, will manage it reasonably well. But for some countries, this will be too much to deal with. And we have to look for, for casualties and potential um, crisis moments in, in some of those countries. So I think it worth uh, it, it pays to pay attention to food prices and to, to have a really good eye on what is happening in, in countries around the globe. And I think those would be my main takeaways from how I see inflation. Well, Constantine, I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through that. Very insightful, very interesting. Uh, thanks again for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt.
content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and Mackenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.